Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. All right, confession time. Who here has actually been on TikTok? I mean, like in a significant amount of time and not just because you saw it on Twitter. No, I have only viewed TikTok videos on Twitter. I have never downloaded, opened, or used anyone else's version of that app. I have also seen them on Twitter, but I don't really get it. It's like you only have a few seconds. I don't really understand how TikTok is different from pointing a camera at yourself and tweeting a video. It's something about the the time constraint, I guess, makes people more creative. But <laughs> we need we need a young person on this show. I know this is perfect. Guide we us. are all so good. We are losing the Gen Z contingent as we speak. Needless uh, of whether the Chinese have their data forever, but maybe some young rational security listener can write to us explaining what TikTok really is and how it's or different. Or maybe they could make a Twitter TikTok video. video for us and put it on Twitter. So we'll see. Because we will never download TikTok. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the TikTok for TikTok edition. So now I'm imagining that opening of 60 minutes that goes tick, 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 tick. Does the ticking clock sound exactly the same in China? It probably does. It sounds, but it sounds different for Jeff Sessions because it stopped. <laughs> I oh, ran out. So, coming in hot early with a Jeff Sessions joke. <laughs> well, you know, you are running against a football coach in Alabama, so you know, I would say who doesn't he, know the difference between a B and a P? Oh, is that a his, thing? His name is uh, apparently. I have heard uh, his name is spelled as though it should be pronounced Tommy Tuberville, mm-hmm. like. Like a tuber. No, I think his name is Tommy Tuberville. No, but it's apparently pronounced Tupperville. Oh, like with a P? It's like, Like, uh, so I hear. Yeah. I don't know. Tommy Tuberville, Tupperware temptation. I thought it was Tuberville and everybody mispronounced it Tuberville. I think it's pronounced Tupperville. You guys, we are losing Alabama listeners as we speak. Both of our (laughs) Alabama listeners are gone. Um, I am Shane Harris. I am here in the virtual remote jungle studios with my good friends, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman-Wittes. Hi, guys. Hi. Were you you up late last night, Ben, watching the Alabama primary results? You know, the the end of Jess Sessions came early, uh, Mm. uh, so it was not necessary to stay up late to watch his untimely demise. Well, I'm sure you're shedding a tear. On the podcast this week, Chinese tech giants once again find themselves in the crosshairs of Western governments. The CIA has expanded its operations in cyberspace. And intelligence veterans warned that repairing the U.S. relationship with Russia is a fool's errand. No reset button. It's over. Just like for Jeff Sessions. Oh, my God. This is going to keep going. Listeners, keep count. Like, Let us know later how many of these he got in. All right. Let's start with news this week that the British government is going to, in a pretty dramatic about face, ban Huawei equipment or purge it, I should say, and ban it too, from its uh, 5G networks. And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, flirted publicly with the idea that the United States might ban the TikTok app, which of course is an app developed by a company in China, uh, uh, suggesting, more than suggesting, claiming that it was essentially a security and a privacy risk. Let's start with Huawei first. Ben, the, the British government decision initially to allow 
Huawei equipment in the 5G network met with strenuous objections from U.S. officials, as we've talked about on the podcast before, who said that Huawei is effectively an arm of China's military and intelligence services, and letting them into the 5G network would essentially create conduits for uh, digital espionage and all kinds of other malicious cyber activities into the UK, which of course is our closest security ally. So now the Brits are reversing course. Why this about face and how significant do you think it is? So I think it is potentially very significant, though I would want to hear Susan's thoughts on that. I think the about face is a function of British realization that Huawei's hardware and software and infrastructure actually creates less manageable risk than they had previously imagined. It strikes me as a big win for U.S. policy because if there is a chance of managing, of keeping Huawei from uh, dominating next generation 5G infrastructure, it is by having a coalition of countries, not just an isolated U.S., that refuse to use it and jointly get together to develop competitive alternatives to it. And so far, the U.S. has been quite isolated in that. And Britain, uh, though it is our closest partner, has actually been sort of leading the argument that though the threats are real, the problem is manageable by other means. And the British have been pretty uh, emphatic about that and actually, I think, fairly persuasive about that in the sense that they have you know, created this structure through which they review Huawei materials and Huawei purportedly cooperates with that. Um, and you know, they have posed this as an alternative to U.S. policy. And now they appear to have given up on that which suggests to me that there may be some traction in the long run for uh, the development of a, of a broader coalition of countries that actually is looking for an alternative here. And I will say, um, you know, the number of episodes in which I praise the Trump administration is been pretty limited, but I will say this is something that they have uh, been pretty emphatic about and they have to what extent it's a security issue for them and to what extent it's a kind of anti-China issue. It always gets blurred a little bit, but they've been pretty pretty firm about this and they actually appear to be gaining some headway. And so I think they probably deserve a little credit. I would give them credit, yes, but I would also add a couple of points. One, one is about how they achieved this goal, and the other is about what else was going on that might have shifted the thinking of other Five Eyes partners. So on how they achieved this goal, I think what we've seen is that Mike Pompeo has made it almost a single-issue campaign for him as Secretary of State over the last months. Every single trip he's made, every conversation he's had, this has been a major issue, if not the top issue that he's raised, a whole lot of other things in a whole lot of other bilateral relationships have been made conditional on governments complying with American preferences on Chinese technology in general and Huawei in specific. And there was a lot of bullying involved, including an explicit threat to stop sharing Five Eyes material with any of the Five Eyes who didn't eject Huawei from their 5G uh, infrastructure. And, you know, this isn't to say that the threat is being overblown or not. I'm not in a position to assess that. But I do think that bullying, you know, might have gotten results in this case. But if the cooperation was coerced rather than a sincere agreement on the nature of the threat, then that has to call into question how sustained and how how effective that cooperation will be. I think the other component of, of USG bullying on this was that they banned Huawei from getting access to American semiconductors, which meant that to the extent that American inputs were one way of assuaging doubts about the security of the system, 
they removed it. And so they made it a much starker choice. Now that may, again, that might be legitimate in security terms, but I'm not in a position to judge. The other factor I think was important though, is that it wasn't only the Trump administration that was um, raising alarms in the capitals of major Western partners about Huawei. I think it's really notable that this is one of the very, very few issues, even in an election year, where you had leading Democrats in Congress um, and leading Democratic foreign policy and defense voices echoing the concerns of the Trump administration on Chinese technology. When Nancy Pelosi went to the Munich Security Conference in February, right before COVID shut everything down, she and the Democratic delegation there said almost exactly the same things as the administration representatives there about Chinese technology and about Huawei in particular. And so I think, you know, European or other Five Eyes governments who are trying to navigate the challenges of a Trump administration, this actually made it a fairly easy choice for them because they weren't going to be alienating anyone else here in Washington. It was basically all upside for them. Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, the the mechanisms by which like this is this is clearly a win for the United States, but it's really interesting the ways in which they failed to achieve this and then ultimately did achieve it. So first of all, this is not a victory of persuasion. The United States and the in the UK have always had a fundamentally different understanding of the nature of the Huawei threat, and that's that the United States has always talked about it in terms of Chinese state control and action access to information uh, and the inability to have confidence in sort of supply chain security for Huawei and Chinese companies more generally. The UK has has many times said they uh, have no evidence to believe that Huawei is being used by the Chinese government to spy. Uh, They don't have any examples of of intentionally compromised technology that they can point to. The the UK believes that the concern, the the real concern about Huawei is that their products are not necessarily uh, made uh, to be sufficiently, sufficiently secure. And so they're concerned about performing audits, having transparency. Um, You know, they're just, they're focusing it on it as primarily a, a security and a cybersecurity concern, technical security concern, an engineering challenge, rather than uh, a sort of national security challenge. I mean, keep in mind, the UK has a fundamentally different economic background uh, in terms of their incentives here, because British Telecom uh, decades ago entered into an agreement with Huawei, meaning that for British Telecom com systems, Huawei products are baked in, like you couldn't get them out out if you tried. And so the, all, the question was really what was going to happen moving forward. And Tammy's right. The U.S. did everything we could to bang on the table, to bully, to plead, to persuade, to give carrots, to give sticks. And the U.K. came right out and said, no, w- this is what we're doing. We don't really care. And the one thing that changed their minds is these U.S. sanctions um, that disrupted Chinese supply chains for semiconductors and other materials. And that apparently is what shifted the calculus for the UK. Um, I'm willing to take that on its face, that that actually was the reason, in part because the UK has been so clear about their position and so unwilling um, to sort of compromise with with the Trump administration on this issue, even in the very recent past, and are being so explicit about it now. Um, And so it it is interesting. It's It's a sort of tool of coercive diplomacy that is a win, right? The Trump administration sanctioned China, and that caused the UK to to do an about face. I mean, that, you know, that is sort of uh, shrewd and effective on this limited issue. Uh, The the question is, like, it's a a pretty blunt instrument. And so this isn't a one-time decision that we're going to need our allies to make. We're going to need them to make hundreds of these types of decisions and really sort of form a partnership moving forward over the next decade and decades. And so I, I, I just can't see this as like a vindication for the Trump model or, or the Pompeo approach to these things. Well, let's talk a bit more about that approach, because now Pompeo is coming out and saying that the United States might ban TikTok. Maybe he's sort of feeling you know high on the successes he might perceive it of 
ultimately persuading the Brits to come around to our point of view. But there is, I mean, there's a, a, there's a big open question of whether TikTok is actually a national security threat. And we can talk about that. But I'm curious, I mean, and, and Ben or Susan or Tam, you can take this. I mean, how would we even go about banning an app? I mean, is it as simple as the federal government says to Apple and the app developers, you're not allowed to carry this because, you know, we're going to slap a label on it and, you know, the way we would, I don't know, weapons or, or you know, uh, banned substances or how, how would that even be, uh, you know, put into effect? I don't think the government can ban TikTok. The entities that can ban TikTok as a functional matter are Apple and Google, one of which runs the iTunes store or the the Apple App Store, and the other of which runs the Google Play Store. If you want to restrict the consumer's access to an app made by a private developer, I think the legal hurdles to the government trying to do that are pretty prohibitive i'd be i'd be curious whether susan agrees with me about that but um you know i think what the government can do is talk about it a lot and apparently the indian government can ban tiktok but i don't think the go- the us government can do that realistically yeah, I think that's right. There there are no available tools or authorities by which the government can ban an app. So we've seen, right, whenever the government wanted um, to disincentivize using Kaspersky systems, what they said was it's the government contracts can't be used to buy uh, devices or, or with companies that use this uh, this antivirus software. But they actually, they can't, they don't have the authority to ban something outright. I mean, theoretically, they could be talking about attempting to get Congress to pass a law banning this company, um, although it's sort of in the existing legislative landscape, that's just absurd, not to mention sort of the question of whether or not it could even um, meet the obvious First Amendment issues. Um, you know, so I, I think Ben's right. This is a um, it's a it's a bizarre way to go about a, what's fundamentally a PR and a public education campaign about why you shouldn't be using these products, potentially even a campaign to ban uh, to to pressure the companies to not allow them on their platforms. Um, but by coming out and saying we're contemplating banning them, um, They've just set themselves up to look ineffective from the outset because, of course, they can't do that. So it, it's it's just sort of like a, a bizarre Trumpian overreach. And, and it's weird to see like Mike Pompeo talking about it. I, I don't think it's weird to see Mike Pompeo talking in an authoritarian manner about things he can't actually accomplish. I think that's a lot of what he spends his day doing, actually. But um, setting that aside, I I think the bigger problem here is that um, the government is trying to raise concerns about privacy and security regarding an app that is really popular with younger folks, um, with kids and with young adults. And it's not doing much of a job in terms of public education. It's just bad-mouthing them without without explaining to people why they should not want to do this. And we already know from a lot of different kinds of data that younger Americans have a very different attitude toward privacy and technology than you or I. Um, And they probably don't have much awareness, much less concern about national security issues related to technology and privacy. And so I, you know, this would be an opportunity for a normal government on, you know, alternate earth to sort of engage in a broader public education campaign about wise use of applications and what to look for and what to worry about and stuff like that and try to try to make people less vulnerable to a tool like this. But I, I just don't think the Trump administration is constitutionally capable of that. Well, while U.S. officials are saying that they are shocked, shocked to find espionage going on in this casino... Uh, There's a big story from Yahoo News today about the CIA expanding its spying and its offensive operations in cyberspace. Uh, Their reporters uh, say that the president has signed an intelligence finding 
which appears to have really loosened the reins on CIA's ability to conduct cyber operations, including, they report, attacks on infrastructure, as well as hack-and-dump operations, so the theft of documents and then the publication of them, although I think it's fairly, uh, it's laid out in the story that it seems to be through various cutouts, so it's not tied back to the agency. And of course, an intelligence finding is meant to be covert, so it does not get tied back to the U.S. So Susan, under Trump, the CIA has generally, I think it's safe to say, been given a freer hand on operations. Um, you talk to people in the operations directorate, and you know, despite what they may think of the president, uh, you know, they feel like the Trump administration, in some sense, has been kind of good for business. Cyberspace is newer territory, I suppose, for the CIA. The NSA and Cyber Command traditionally dominate that space. So what does it mean that CIA is moving into uh, this action? Yeah, so there's a couple of different layers to this story. So the first is to remember that there was a sort of in 2018, I think August of 2018, a Wall Street Journal story that reported that the Trump administration and Trump had repealed Presidential Policy Directive 20, PPD 20, which was essentially the, um, the, the new Obama era mechanism overseeing offensive cyber operations um, that in sort of broad strokes essentially required these decisions to be elevated to a much higher level. And the idea was uh, to sort of prevent various agency freelancing and have sort of a coordinated effort. It was something that the agencies at the time really um, bridled against. They felt like this was sort of NSC micromanagement and nothing was ever going to get done. Um, And so sort of as early as 2018, sort of that first layer had fallen. Um, And we sort of went back to the the world before, uh, before PPD 20. Now this this report is saying that CIA in particular has been given uh, based on this intelligence finding is going it has been sort of given the authority not just to make its own decisions right to to basically not need presidential sign off but to allow decisions to be made at the agency level but also that it's been authorized to undertake very specific types of activity that isn't just interesting that CIA would be doing it but that we would be doing it at all and that we would be talking about it. So this talks about, um, you know, sort of authorizing CIA to strike out against electric grids, to target banks and financial institutions. You know, we've spent the last 10 years uh, sort of culminating in the Xi agreement under the Obama administration, trying to argue that we should have normative rules against targeting electric grids, against attacks on financial institutions. And so to me, sort of the puzzle of this is this is a really abrupt policy shift, not just in apparently sort of CIA has grabbed the reins here, but that there's a reason this information is coming out. And and what it's really signaling is the long-standing U.S. policy on attempting to advocate for the establishment of international cyber norms and attempting to do so through agreements to self-constrain, like, that's gone. And now instead, we have a U.S. policy and a vocal U.S. policy that is about doing all the things or being authorized to do all the things we've been screaming about China, uh, you know, and, and Iran and other countries doing for years. And so the logic of that shift, the question of why now, um, that's a, that, that I think that's sort of the, the really interesting unanswered question question in this piece. It just it raises a lot about sort of what is the policy process and what is the ultimate policy goal here? Yeah, I, I think those are great questions. I also have to wonder if one reason why this stuff might be coming out now is the link to what's been going on in Iran over the last few weeks, where there have been a number of sort of unexplained fires, power outages, explosions, and things like that. Explosions um, happen all the time. What do you mean? All the time. And, you know, the, the sort of standard um, explanation in the media and among analysts so far is that these are Israeli covert actions. But I think reading this story and realizing that, you know, actually for some time now, CIA has had a much freer hand in designing, you know, potential attacks 
like this, well, you know, maybe we should think differently about who gets credit for that. So that might be another motive for sources who are speaking out uh, to Yahoo News. But there, there are a number of things in here that I, I have to say I find concerning, not necessarily with respect to the efforts, the nascent efforts over the last decade that Susan described to try and create some sort of international norms around cyber warfare, um, which I think was always a, a real uphill slog um, if, it was, if it's viable at all. But I think that there are issues regarding norms around domestic norms around the CIA. And, you know, both the CIA and the military felt that the Obama administration micromanaged them, overlawyered them, you know, impeded their agility, impeded their ability to really go after their enemies by insisting on maintaining control in the White House and reviewing all kinds of operations. But the fact is that the Obama administration did that very deliberately because it was trying to correct for a Bush administration that had run roughshod over both laws and norms with respect to torture, with respect to surveillance and so on. And there was a public demand for more constraint and there was a principled view in the Obama administration that more constraint was necessary. And so now Trump's taken the handcuffs off the CIA and potentially opened a huge can of worms. You know, we were talking last week about progressive foreign policy activists. And one of the things they are very exercised by um, is not just the size of the Pentagon budget, but the the abuses of the Bush administration and previous abuses by the military and intelligence community. Um, they're still very concerned about things like drone strikes, for example, targeted killings. And, you know, I, I can only imagine one incident in which the CIA, let's just spitball, hypothetical, blows up a power plant in Iran that cuts electricity to a centrifuge factory, but also cuts electricity to baby incubators and COVID patients on ventilators, right? Let's imagine what the political and policy fallout would be from an incident like that. Um, and that's before you even get to the moral equivalency problems that I think this raises. So I'm really, really anxious about it, to be perfectly frank. There's another claim in this story <clears throat> that the CIA is behind these hacking and dumping operations, and, and the reporters kind of insinuate, although it's clear they're not entirely sure that it may have even been one uh, that exposed FSB hacking tools uh, and kind of like a, re a reversal of the Vault 7 leaks that exposed CIA hacking tools. That looks sort of like a classic intelligence operation, but I also wonder if the CIA were to start getting into the area of exposing information about, say, Vladimir Putin's finances or uh, operations that were meant to embarrass or, or, or kind of dox political figures, would that be the equivalent of the kind of political meddling that the United States excoriated Russia for in 2016. I mean, Ben, maybe you want to take that on. It seems to me that you could imagine a universe in which the CIA starts doing the very things that our intelligence community has been saying, Russia, you better not be doing to us. Right. So look, I think there are a few discrete issues here and let's, let's disaggregate them. One is the question of how involved the CIA should be in cyber operations at all. Normally, when we think of cyber operations, we think of NSA activity, and CIA is kind of a more human source uh, intelligence agency, mostly. And so one set of questions which the article does not begin to address is why is the CIA getting more latitude on this rather than NSA. A second set of questions is, you know, the questions that Tammy just raised, which is, to what extent should we be doing this stuff at all? And then within that bucket, a third set of questions, which is the one that I think you just put your finger on, is assuming we should be doing some of this a little, a little bit more, should we stay the hell away from anything that would erode our ability to object to things like Russian electoral interference? Now, I happen to think that 
the Russians actually need some payback in the hacking and dumping department, but it should stay the heck away from anything that looks like an electoral intervention. I think, you know, releasing Putin private materials of some sort might be a fine idea, but I think you want to be super cautious about anything that could look like an intervention in a foreign electoral campaign, because that is a norm that I think we want to strongly, strongly support. So whoever did the Panama Papers, bravo. I'm totally for that. Now, Russia doesn't have real elections to interfere with, but I do think you know, getting involved in any country's electoral process is really a no-no for us because we're trying to establish that it's a no-no for everybody. And that brings me back to some of these other operations. You know, we don't know from this story what is now on the table and what is off the table, except that more is on the table than was and with a fair bit less regulation. I don't personally know where the magic line is about how much how much oversight the White House should have over the CIA in, you know, just like there's no right answer to the question of how much should, you know, we be pushing operational decisions down to field commanders in in the military. The Obama administration was super centralizing in all of these areas. A lot of other administrations are a little bit less so. There's no magic right answer to that. I do think to the extent that we're talking here about attacks on electrical infrastructure, attacks on and hacking and dumping operations that get anywhere near elections, you're talking about very dangerous activity for the United States to be getting involved with. And I sure do hope we keep it more secret than we were able to do in Stuxnet. Yeah. And just to, to elaborate on that, the the it is the kind of very, very dangerous high stakes activity that should be should be authorized at the presidential level in which you really, really don't want agency freelancing because of the potential stakes. And and a little bit, and, and Tammy, correct me if I'm uh, misremembering this, but I'm remembering a point that Tammy made, I mean, way back in 2016, I think, when we were first talking about the Panama Papers. And that's the asymmetric nature of engaging in that kind of tit for tat with Russia. Because Russians already believe Putin is incredibly corrupt. And so the idea that releasing bank statements of of Russian oligarchs somehow makes a difference is like the the cost that that imposes on adversaries is incredibly low, especially set against the risk of normalizing that behavior as used against us. And so it's the kind of really, really complex policy making that requires lots and lots of different input. And yet we're being, it's yet it's coming to us in a story that says, yeah, the president has nothing to do with any of this and CIA is doing this and who knows what the other agencies are up to, where the hell the State Department is, uh, you know, it'll all be fine, I guess. And that is a really, really alarming thing. Yeah, it's not even clear, like, you know, how it's determined who are, which countries are legitimate targets for this. And so you can imagine, you know, doing this kinds of hack and dump operations against the Russians or against the IRGC, for example, you know, but how do we know that the rules disallow doing it against um, a country that, you know, is basically a partner, but we might have scratchy relations with this particular political leader of that country, you know? And so then we start using it to affect the outcomes of elections and things like that. I mean, I, I think this story just begs for strong oversight and accountability from Congress from more, you know, from a clearer understanding of what the content is and what the rules are. And ultimately from, you know, I, I think if this is seen as a correction to the Obama administration, it is a way over correction. Well, clearly the lesson here too is don't piss off Gina Haspel. Yeah. <laughs> she will hack the shit out of your TikTok. The world will see your private TikTok. 
my be friends. Very nice to Gina. <clears throat> Always be nice to or Gina. You'll end up like Jeff Sessions. <laughs> that was a stretch. That was... <laughs> He's going to start claiming the CIA gave it to Mr. Tupperware or whatever his name is. <laughs> uh, well, while we're talking about the wisdom or lack of wisdom of hacking uh, Russia and other countries, a group of former CIA officers has come out with a strong op-ed in the Washington Post, uh, essentially arguing. When it comes to trying to improve relations with Russia, stop wasting your time. Uh, The headline is Trump wants the CIA to cooperate with Russia. We tried it. It was a disaster. Uh, Written by four people, all of whom have extensive experience in the operations side and particularly on Russia. Uh, I will read just a few choice lines, uh, maybe the last paragraph here, which will give you the flavor of the piece. Yeah, that's choice already. (laughs) Inside the CIA, we often joke that to Putin, win-win means I beat you twice. Good intentions from the U.S. side have proved time and again to have been futile in improving relations. The periodic desire to work with the Russians on terrorism is akin to someone who buys a baboon as a pet, only to be surprised to have their face ripped off. Then, after recovering, he goes out and buys another baboon. How many times do we have to get our face ripped off by the Russians before we realize that we have fundamentally different goals? It's a vivid image. Um, Tammy, I want your read on this. Uh, These retired officers are making this case, right, that this is at least on security matters. We're always left holding the short end of the stick with the Russians uh, and that it's time to really wise up to the fact that Russia is not our friend and that Putin especially, who is a KGB officer to his core, sees Russia in a political war with the U.S. Are they right? And and do you think they're making a persuasive case here? Thanks, Shane. I That is definitely the liveliest literary analogy <laughs> I have read on an op-ed page in a long time. It's pretty good. Um, yeah. It's going to stay with me for a while, terrifyingly so. Um, so I look, I think there are three things going on in this argument, and all of them are worthy, but, you know, need to be sort of disentangled. The first is the very simple point that across three administrations, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump, the United States has tried to engage in narrow counterterrorism cooperation with the Russians, and that cooperation has not been reciprocal. So that's their their first point. And, you know, they cite a lot of examples for that, where the United States gave shared assessments with the Russians, shared intelligence about impending attacks, and the Russians never returned the favor, basically. And in the intelligence trade, but in foreign policy in general, if if relationships aren't reciprocal, they are very often not um, not going to last very long. And so, you know, at the sort of narrow level of counterterrorism effectiveness, that's point number one. The second point I think they're making, and, you know, I think that that course analogy is a good signal, is that people who believe in functional cooperation uh, are naive. That it's naive to believe that counterterrorism cooperation will lead to better behavior or better relations from a country that doesn't share our interests. And, you know, this is you can almost hear them rolling their eyes saying these freaking diplomats, you know, they always say, well, we need Russia's help on X and we want Russia's help on Y. And so can't we just use counterterrorism cooperation as a way to build a better back and forth with the Russians? And and the CIA guys are rolling their eyes and saying, why do you have to use my valuable stuff as leverage on your stupid diplomatic priority when you know they're never going to do it for you anyway? Right. So <laughs> there's a little bit of that going on in this op-ed, I think, as a subtext. But then finally, and most fundamentally, I think there's a judgment here which is, you know, this is the CIA's job is to make strategic assessments about the intentions of other governments and in and a very important government, you know. And so there's a fundamental judgment here um, from a bunch of seasoned intelligence officials that Russian intentions are hostile. And that fundamental judgment is they, you know, they say very plainly, um, was at odds with the policy preferences of three successive American presidents. Um, and so they're they're just stating their case and saying nobody listened to us. 
which you know brings brings me to the question that you asked Shane have they been proven right and is you know i'm not going to say it's naive uh these previous attempts at tactical cooperation on counterterrorism or functional cooperation in building a relationship with Russia that's not entirely adversarial. I think there has been a strong interest that I would say is a strategic interest on the part of successive American administrations to avoid kind of leaping into the assumption that we're in a new all-out geopolitical competition with Russia and with China, and to look for ways to try and tamp down this sense of, you know, a kind of all-out war with these two powers. But I think at this point, and particularly after 2016, after the Skirpal poisoning, and after all the ways we've seen Putin play and take advantage of Trump administration policies, I think that they have been proven right. And so, you know, we may not want to have an all-out war with Russia, but it looks like we're going to. And frankly, I, I... I can say that with a lot of confidence in what the outcome will be, because the Russians economically um, and politically and militarily are at this point a middle power at best. Yeah. So one sort of question I had reading this op-ed was, is it written to Biden Right. So it, it actually is interesting. We've seen so much Russian sort of Russia policy commentary that's so rooted in Trump's bizarre impulses uh, towards Russia and Vladimir Putin sort of particularly. And this is it's sort of it's interesting to see something that really is about the kind of old fashioned, large scale, you know, foreign policy debates and discussions. And a little bit, I, I think it's interesting, and, and I agree with everything that Tammy said, it does sort of leave open the question of it, when and if Joe Biden becomes president in 2021, what do we do about everything that's already happened? And what are the existing incentives? And what does cleaning up Russia policy look like? And on one hand, I think they have been proven right. And and, and this sort of uh, naivete, we, we've paid a real price for that. That said, you know, a, a sort of dispassionate observer might be more concerned about uh, the incentives being to retaliate too much, to break relations uh, in too extreme a manner because, it's a little bit payback. It's a little bit um, reset. It's a little bit, you know, just just showing that there's a new uh, a new sheriff in town. And so, I, I, th- these are enormously complicated questions. And and it actually is interesting. Other than sort of taking some pot shots, I don't think Joe Biden has really articulated what his view of cooperation with Russia or Russia relationship moving forward would even look like. Yeah. So I'm going to outflank you both. Uh, Tammy says she's not going to say the last three administrations have been naive, but I want to say there has been an escalating naivete between these three administrations. It was naive of George W. Bush, understandable, but naive after 9-11 to believe that the Cold War was still over and say he had looked into Vladimir Putin's eyes and seen his soul and we had shared values and we were going to fight terrorism together. That was naive and Vladimir Putin made him look like an idiot. In the face of that, it was even more naive for Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton to say they were going to hit a reset button with Russia And by this time, uh, we had seen significant uh, overseas aggression by the Russians. We'd seen a second wave of of very brutal stuff in Chechnya. And for them to think that the problem in dealing with Russia was really just the Bush administration, it was very naive. And in the face of both of those experiences, for Donald Trump to say, Uh, It would be great if we in Russia could get along and to sort of double down on the idea that there's this there's this basis of peace, love and tofu between us and and Vladimir Putin was naive 
at the very best. I mean, you know, you can go into all kinds of things that it might also have been, but at a minimum, it was super naive. What Russia needs right now from the United States is very clear set of red lines and consequences, that it cannot kill people overseas, that it is not allowed to acquire territory through the use of force, and that it's got to figure out a different sense of its own gain strategically in the world other than the West's loss. And it needs to be hit very hard and punished every time it it exceeds those boundaries, which need to be very firmly articulated. I think it is great for Joe Biden to say as little as possible on this and every issue, but I would hope that he would not be naive like the three prior administrations. And in that sense, I very much agree with this op-ed and would only point out that uh, getting your face ripped off is exactly what happened to Jeff Sessions. Jeez. Um, oh, man, you are at it. I thought you'd tie it back to the baboon and Jeff yeah. Sessions buying a baboon. Yeah, yeah. There's something else that's extraordinary I think about this op-ed that maybe is not obvious to people who don't really closely follow the intelligence community, which is that, you know, each of these people, and, and just for, for listeners, it's John Cipher, Steve Hall, Doug Wise, and Mark Polymeropoulos who wrote the op-ed. It is kind of part of the ethos of, of, of intelligence and of the CIA that you don't make policy, you advise policy makers, and you provide intelligence for them to make informed decisions. This op-ed is making a policy argument. And I do think it's very notable that these are, you know, these were not, you know, State Department people. These are former um, operations officers, clandestine officers in the CIA. And I think it's a, it's a kind of illustration of where we are right now in, in both the way that the intelligence community, I think, feels that it has to speak out in the face of Donald Trump, uh, but also the extent to which I think that this is not a view that is only shared by these four people. I mean, you know, Gina Haspel has made great power competition and countering Russia, along with China and other countries as well, kind of mission number one again for the CIA. And it just struck me that we're living in a moment where four people who, you know, only a few years ago, these guys would not probably have been putting their name on an op-ed that was advising uh, a policy strategy. And I'll just put my own two cents on it. This is absolutely directed at Joe Biden and his campaign. But go ahead, Tammy. Yeah, look, I, I, I think you're right that it's directed at the future policy leaders. Um, but I wonder whether it's really, I mean, I don't know these four guys in specific, and you may have a better sense of, of um, their inclinations, Shane, but I don't think it's at all unusual for people after they leave the agency to suddenly have policy views that they're expressing loudly that they couldn't express when they were in office because you're right, that's the norm. That's not the role of the IC. And, you know, as when I was sort of going through my analysis of the op-ed earlier, I, I saw a lot of score settling in there, uh, you know, that was essentially saying, we told you and told you, and you never listened to us. Um, and so, you know, it, I don't think that's as unusual as you think it is, but maybe it's unusual for these four guys, or maybe it's unusual for people who, you know, specialize in operations. Yeah, maybe, maybe a little bit of that, but it's, 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 it's interesting to me. I mean, I guess if, if nothing else, then it is an attempt to influence the debate in the midst of a, of an election campaign, uh, which is, uh, you know, to our earlier discussion is something that generally CIA guys like to avoid, but these are the times that we're living in, I guess, right? Well, now, if Biden if Biden wants to show that he's going to be really tough on Russia, all he has to do is appoint one of these four guys to a post. Uh, actually, that's a really interesting point, and I could imagine that and give uh, them a baboon mask. Oh my God, <laughs> you can't let go of the baboon, huh? I love baboons. <laughs> I think some of these guys might take him up on the offer. John uh, Cipher would love to show up to testify on Russia before Congress wearing a baboon mask. <laughs> Jesus, how do you know he wrote that line? Look, 
Putin is the baboon here, people. Yeah. I know, but you know, to you. write that line, you've got to see the baboon in yourself, at least a little bit. I looked into his eyes and saw my own baboon. Oh, God. Um, the eyes of an honest baboon. Oh, my God. Tammy, rescue us with your object, please. Okay. <laughs> Regular listeners of Rational Security know that I have a thing about helicopters, and I don't mean to say that I have a thing for helicopters. You all know that the bane of my existence here in our capital city is the low-flying helicopter. Ben often makes fun of me on this podcast for my obsession with low-flying helicopter, which is a personality in my mind. But now I have proof that there really is a bigger problem with low-flying helicopters in the DMV, in the capital area today, than there has been in the past. And in fact, the information released corroborates my timeline almost perfectly. I must refer you all to an article by our local Fox 5 DC news channel. DMV residents want answers on late-night helicopter flights. Shout out to Congressman Don Beyer of Virginia, who required the military last year to investigate the military helicopter flights over our capital area. And it has now been disclosed that there is a budget request for a secret that is classified mission over Washington that involves 10 UH-60 Blackhawk helicopters and a sensitive compartmented information facility skiff as we were describing in the australian embassy that they want to build in fort belvoir so that they can do whatever they're doing with the classified information they get from making my windows rattle so i have not been imagining it there are blackhawks flying over washington they will not tell us why and they will not tell us for how long but it seems that unless congress rejects this appropriation we're stuck with them and Tammy has a whiteboard in her basement that is, it pulls it all together. It, it's not a whiteboard. It's a bulletin board with string and, <laughs> you know, and the Illuminati and the lizards in one corner and the low flying <laughs> helicopter in the other corner. All right. All right. I have a congressionally mandated study to back me up. So there. There you go. Um, I'll go next. My object is a uh, presidential personnel announcement. Um, <clears throat> uh, yesterday, this would be Tuesday, the president announced that Dr. Sebastian Gorka, <laughs> you remember him. <laughs> you remember him. He blocked you remember him. on Twitter. You remember him. And if you don't know who we're talking about, just go look it up. Uh, Sebastian Gorka has been named to be a member of the National Security Education Board. To which my reaction was, what the hell is the National Security <laughs> Education Board? I mean, I've been reporting on this stuff for 20 years. I have never heard of this thing. And I've heard of some like, you know, BS boards with, you know, that are perfect when you want to give someone a sinecure. Um, I don't know what this is. It is a thing. And with no offense to the people who started it, you probably have very good intentions. But I, I really, I don't know what this is. So I can't really explain why you would give it to Sebastian Gorka. I'm going to go on a limb and say it's not that big of a deal. Uh, but I am putting out the call to Rational Security listeners. If you know, I guess, do we call it the NSEB? Maybe it's like, ooh, Ooh, and, and Seb Gorka. Seb Gorka. That's why he wanted it. That's why he wanted oh, it. Put I it on see. Tammy's board. It's Put another it data board. point. It's on the board. I think we should FOIA all of the correspondence among members of the NSEB about their reaction to yesterday's news. That <laughs> it's Seb the first Gorka. time they've emailed with each other in three months. And it's like it's like a multi-year term, right? Shane? It's like four years. I mean, yeah. I presume that a subsequent president could terminate it if Joe Biden knows what it is. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to look deep into the the innards of the federal government. I mean, does the National Security Education Board is it advising on the reopening of, of national security schools? I, I don't I don't know. It has a personnel. I actually component. suspect that it has to do with the administration of national security education fellowships. Oh, okay. so he can prevent Muslims from being from getting any of them. Maybe that is the final professional resting place for Jeff Sessions, because he also oh. would like to prevent Muslims from 
getting national security positions. Well, there aren't that many slots left available, so he'll have to hurry. Uh, Ben, what is your object? My object lesson, of course, has to do with Jeff Sessions, uh, which is a really wonderful interview that uh, was aired on the Bulwark podcast yesterday in which uh, Charlie Sykes, the redoubtable host of the Bulwark podcast, interviews Elena Plott of the New York Times about her reporting on Jeff Sessions um, and his uh, what was looking then and, and now has been confirmed to be like losing bid for his old Senate seat. And uh, this is uh, Elena Plott's uh, pronunciation was where I learned that I had been mispronouncing Tommy Tuberville's uh, name the whole time. But um, it is a really interesting conversation about the way that Sessions' entire world unraveled beginning the day that he recused himself from the Russia investigation. And she uh, goes through in a way that I, I thought was sort of moving and pathetic and sad and enraging uh, the contortions he has gone through over years now to try to get himself back into the good graces of the president, leading to this humiliating spectacle in which he uh, lost uh, the nomination uh, for his old job to somebody with no political history, who doesn't clearly have residence in the state, and who may not have even voted in 2016 for Donald Trump. So to go from being the president's first Senate supporter to somebody who the president was reported to have said recently that if he prevailed in the primary, uh, the president would endorse Democrat Doug Jones, who had voted for his removal from office, is an incredible fall. And to have lost along the way the ability to even get reelected in Alabama itself is just a humiliating end uh, for Jeff Sessions. And though it is in many ways well-deserved, the irony is it was all precipitated by the one significantly honorable thing he did in office, which was to recuse himself from a manner and matter in which he, recusal was required and to stand by that decision and uh, not uh, seek to re-inject himself into the matter from which he had recused. Uh, Susan. My object lesson is also about Jeff Sessions, oh but God. it's about the true tragedy of Jeff Sessions' end in elected politics, um, which is not really about Jeff Sessions at all, but instead is about this being the last occasion for me to share one of my favorite Onion articles of all time, which was originally written in 2018, in March of 2018, or May of 2018, when Trump was just coming after Sessions, just a barrage of criticism every single day. And the title of this piece is Inconsolable Jeff Sessions Tries to Commit Suicide by Smoking Joints. <laughs> and they have a picture, and it's just perfect. And, you know, just I realized yesterday, never again will I be able to share this Onion article because we've probably heard the last of Jeff Sessions. You're going to so, have to teach your children about Jeff Sessions just so you can share that Onion article. <laughs> So they can appreciate. <sighs> Maybe Jeff Sessions could get a job as a spokesman for Goya. Oh, no, Ivanka already has that job. As long as there are recording technologies and cameras, Ann Coulter will still be the one-woman cult of Jeff Sessions. Wow. It's going to be a lonely cult. You know, she's game for it. You don't get to choose your cults, I guess. Well, actually, no, you probably do. Sometimes the cult chooses you. And you've chosen to listen to another episode of Rational Security, which, of course, is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can sign up for our Jeff Sessions cult uh, and get free buttons at Jeff Sessions. 
No shame. Post life. You cannot buy Jeff Sessions merch at thelawfarestore.com. Well, give it time. Just keep your mind open. You know, it's a new day. People got new gigs. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us as well on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please do leave us a rating and review. It helps uh, new people find the show, and we love hearing what you guys think. Our audio engineer this week was Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited, as always, by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by, yeah, who else? Jeff Sessions uh, with his stirring rendition of Total Eclipse of the Heart. Oh, I thought you were going to go with Jeff Sessions and the baboons. <laughs> you know, he's got time to form a band now. It could be like, you know, a Dr. Doolittle type thing. Yeah, it'd be like the monkeys. Yeah, like actual monkeys, like banging, banging drums. That'd be real good. They could hold on to play with his ears. That'd be really fun. Uh, no, Sophia Yan is not signing up for that, and she is certainly not adopting any crazy baboons as pets. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. 